0: Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, folks, we're going to do what's called in this business an open mic. That means we are inviting you all to create a dialogue with us call in 937-5103 that's 707-937-5103 call in maybe you have some questions you have some comments on things that we're saying maybe you have some comments on the state of health in your own house in the community in the country maybe you have something related to health because this is mind body health and politics I've explained why in the past the word politics is in with mind-body-health, and that's because our air, our water, the food we eat, almost everything that's related to our health is political, because people are sitting around in rooms somewhere voting on our air quality, voting on our water quality, voting on our food, the condition of our food, and even voting on what food and what pharmaceuticals are allowable. I've gone into this in some detail. I'm sure I'll keep going into it in the future because it's so essential to our consciousness. But that's why it's mind, body, health, and politics. And that's why when you call in, you can call in with comments about politics as well as mind, body, and health. Again, the number seven zero seven nine three seven five one zero three. 707-937-5103. If you miss it, I'll do my best to remember to keep saying it and Michael here, my dear friend Mike Delora, engineer sitting here, will also send me a note from time to time, say, hey, remember to put up the telephone number. Thank you, Michael. Let's start out with a health assessment, a personal health assessment. What, do you take time, and if you don't, I hope you'll consider doing so, do you take time to consider your physical health, to sit down quietly, not with your doctor, not with your friends, not with your family, but with yourself and consider your physical health. How does your physical health how does it stand up to your own observation? What do you notice about your physical health? And if you are ranking your physical health your own satisfaction, it's your own personal scale, don't need to look it up in a book or go anyplace, just need to sit in a chair and consider your physical health, how would you rank it on a scale of 1 to 10? Are you willing to do this? Do you think it's a good idea to do this? Or do you think it's enough to go to a doctor occasionally and get a physical and be told a couple of things, or not. Well, how about doing the same thing with your mental health? Sit down and consider, how is your mental health? How would you, how would you rank your mental health on a scale of 1 to 10? How's your attitude? Do you feel depressed too often? Do you suffer from anxiety, what you would consider to be too often? Have you ever considered taking something in order to change your emotional state? Why do I mention taking something? Because we live in a culture which teaches us that when we have something going on inside of ourselves, whether it's physical or emotional, we live in a culture which teaches us that we look for something outside of ourselves in order to change what's going on inside of ourselves. And this is a, from my perspective, a very misguided, very misguided way of teaching. Why is that? Because if I fe- I'm feeling anxious, I have this feeling. What is anxiety? Anxiety is a, is a kind of buzz. It's a kind of a little electrical buzz that brings with it a feeling of, to the extreme, eminent doom. You know, something bad's going to happen. That's what anxiety is. It's an uncomfortable feeling that something not good is about to happen. And we are taught that when we have this feeling, we start looking around outside of ourselves for what's causing it. And that also means we're subject to a massive amount of advertising on radio, on television, in the culture, in books, in magazines, everywhere you look, that when you have something like anxiety, or the flip side, depression, but it doesn't have to be flip side, by the way, folks, because one can have anxiety and depression at the very same time. That's really a double whammy. Depression is feeling down and heavy and weighty and negative, and a blue sky day looks gray and at the same time having this negative buzz that something bad's going to happen. But they also happen separately, anxiety and depression. And we're taught that when we have these things, we do something similar to when we have a headache or a stomach ache or a pain or bleeding that we can't control. We go to someone else and they give us something to take care of the situation. So, a common example is we have a headache and we take aspirin. Very few of us sit down with the headache and look at it. What would it mean to look at a headache? It would mean to sit down, close one's eyes, go inside, look at the nature of the pain, feel the pain, see if it has a color, see if, it, if you can taste it in your mouth. That happens at times. See where it's located. Is it in your whole head? Is it in your temple? Is it a pounding? There are different kinds of headaches. A headache that comes up over the back, uh, up the shoulders through the back uh, of the head and the back of the neck, that can be eliminated very often by simply stretching those muscles in the back of the neck because when they get very tight, they create pain. But again, rather than doing that, sitting down and taking a look inside, or in the case of anxiety, sitting down and saying, what is this terrible feeling? Where in my body do I feel this? Is, is it everywhere? Is it in my feet? Is it in my arms? Actually, typically anxiety we feel in our chest and stomach. It doesn't mean to say you can't feel it in other places, but typically it's in the chest and stomach and radiates out, this uncomfortable buzz that I mentioned, this feeling of something bad's going to happen. And so given what we're taught about getting help from a doctor or others when we have some kind of a physical condition, we generalize the same thing to emotion, and we look outside of ourselves for something to change our inside state. Actually, if we go inside, that's where the answers are, because anxiety, for example, it can be reduced And it can be eliminated by ourselves by going inside. But we have to take the time and we have to change our mindset about immediately reaching for something, a pill. Or, very common with anxiety and with depression, is for people to reach for food. Because eating a bunch of food, almost no matter what you eat, changes the emotional state. And people learn this very quickly. And we have it in our culture, uh, uh the, these, uh, common, uh, idiom. We say, this is comfort food. You've heard that, Michael, haven't you? Comfort food, right? And what do we, what do we typically mean when we say comfort food? What do you think of when you say comfort food?
1: Oh, something that takes your mind off of what's bothering you and, uh, uh, gives you relief in a way, I think. But, you know, Richard, what you're saying there, I think is true and, uh, Often we see things, uh, anxiety comes when we see things that bother us, but we can realize that we see things through the filter of our own uh, perception and our own experience and so on. And so we think, see things not necessarily as they are, but as we are. The way we are.
0: And right. that's the sum total of everything we've learned through our entire life plus our genetic inheritance. And we sort of forget that we as the observer are actually creating what it is that we're seeing, don't we? We forget that. We do forget
1: that. And one thing I've heard, you know, a a good analogy is that when we see something wrong, we tend to want to take care of the outside. What's wrong out there? Let me correct it. Rather than looking inside, it's sort of like looking in the mirror and seeing your hair out of place, and reaching out and trying to touch the mirror. You know, <laughs> Very
0: good example. Instead uh,
1: <laughs> of just taking care of the problem where it, where it exists. That's a great example.
0: By the way, Michael, I see the phone is ringing. Yeah. We, already, we have a call already. Let's, uh, let's see what our listener has to say. Hi there. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air.
2: Hi, Dr. Miller. This is Scott Peterson in Mendocino. G-
0: good morning to you.
2: Good morning to you. Thank you. I have a, 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 a statement and then a, a, a question, and I'll take my answer off the air. Okay. First of all, I've been doing some uh, research on local nonprofits, including Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. And I found something interesting in the annual filings, which are really community reports, for reports by Mendocino County Public Broadcasting to the community on the inner workings of KZYX, including finances and policies and things like that. Over the last uh, two to three years, a real interesting thing going on about the the disclosure of that filing, it's called a 990. And I want to read to you the exact language that I found on these, the last two or three years worth of filings.
0: Okay, I hope it's short. It is. Good.
2: The question was, um, Describe in Schedule O the process, if any, used by the organization to review this Form 990. And the answer was this, no review was or will be conducted. And my question was, you know, who or what, what would be the purpose of this, of a policy like this? And I'll take my answer off here.
0: So if I understand uh, uh, Scott's question, he's asking, what is the purpose of a policy which is we don't review where a review is called for? And um, I have absolutely no idea what the answer to that question is. And uh, I would refer it, uh, dear listener, Mr. Scott Peterson, I would refer to your question to either uh, Meg Courtney, the chairman of the board of directors of KZYX, or possibly to our new and lovely uh, general manager, Lorraine Dechter. And so uh, I hope that helps. And perhaps you'll call back sometime and let us know what you found out. Okay, back to um, this self-assessment. You see where I'm going with this, folks. I'm saying that in addition, to going to a physician, if you do do that uh, at a some expense on a yearly basis, and I know many people don't do it in order to avoid the expense, or they just sort of forget about doing it, um, to do a self-assessment from time to time, and how often, of course, is up to you, but a self-assessment of both your physical and your mental health. And, when it comes to physical health, there really are a lot of things that you can do as well as just do your subjective, you know, how am I feeling? It's, it's, uh, it's easy uh, to buy a relatively inexpensive blood pressure uh, machine, a uh, sphygmomanometer uh, at the CV I don't want to mention names of places, but uh, I'll, I'll retract that. <laughs> but you can go to a, a store and buy um, a blood pressure uh, meter, a sphygmomanometer, and take your blood pressure from time to time because that is a good index of what's going on physically. And you can take your temperature from time to time. And if you want to, you can even even buy for uh, I think $15 a little machine and an oximeter which will tell you what percentage of oxygen, the, the oxygen saturation in your blood. You have a few of these little tools like having tools in the garage and you can get a, a pretty good um, a measurement Of what's going on physically and I can't encourage you all enough with regard to keeping track of your blood pressure because let's keep in mind that if you have a garden hose and it's connected to itself in other words the two ends are closed so you have a a circular loop and if you have liquid in that garden hose the liquid is under a certain amount of pressure and you can increase that pressure. How? If you step on some part of the hose, that means you're squeezing the liquid out of that area that you're stepping on, you're going to increase the pressure in the rest of the hose. If you heat up the, uh, the hose, you're going to, the liquid inside is going to expand, and that's going to increase the pressure. Uh, In our own system, which is a closed system, it's called the cardiovascular system of all the little tubes, the arteries and veins that go throughout our system, the same thing is true. If you squeeze one area, you can increase the pressure on the system. If you elevate the temperature, you can um, increase the pressure. And of course, if you have blockage in one of your little tubes which is called atherosclerosis. We all have heard about that, where fat builds up on some kind of little hair that's sticking out and instead of just smoothly running along inside the tube, it collects on this little hair or this little protrusion, sometimes called an inflammation. If you, if you, if you decrease the inside diameter of the tube, that's also going to increase the pressure, right? You have less space for the liquid and so it's under more pressure. And why I'm spending so much time on this is because if you increase the pressure on your cardiovascular system, then the chances of it finding a microscopic hole in the system and leaking out, which is what's called a stroke, are much greater. You want to keep that pressure nice and low. This is an easy way to do it. What about doing the same? Do we have tools for assessing our own mental health? Not so easy. That takes some sitting down. And considering, what's your happiness level? How do you feel about your happiness level? And suppose when you do these these little scales, given that you do them, you come up with a number that you're not too happy about. Suppose your mental health scale, suppose you come up with a 6 or a 7, and you'd really like to be at maybe a 9 or a 10. What do you do about it? Well, you need to think about it to begin with because that's the beginning, the very fact that you're taking the time to consider your own mental health. That in and of itself is important. And so you think about it. And then after you think about it, you start considering a plan, because things don't just happen by themselves. And how do you make a plan? Well, maybe you won't know how to make a plan for improving your mental health, but you can talk to friends about it. You can talk to perhaps some tribal elders around it. What's that? What's a tribal elder? Maybe an uncle or a father or a mother or an aunt. Someone who's got 10 or 20 or 30 years more experience. That doesn't mean automatically, because they have the 10, 20, 30 years more experience, that they've been looking at themselves in this way. But if they have, they may have something to offer. Of course, you can always go, To a mental health professional, a social worker, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and get a professional opinion on making a plan, a plan for improving your mental health. Or by the same token, a plan, an action. And I'm talking about an actual written plan, things that you do on a day to day, week to week basis to improve your physical or mental health, because they're not going to happen in a vacuum. What we're talking about here really are ways of taking personal responsibility for re- improving the quality of our lives. That's what we're really talking about. And sadly, and perhaps unfortunately, these skills are not yet taught in grammar school, junior high school, or high school, or even college, yet. Yet. I say yet because I look forward to the day when such skills are taught. But I know that I went to school for, what, 27 years? I don't know, a long time, 11 years of college. Nobody have, except in my psychology, of course, classes, that's where they did focus on this. But any, nowhere else, unless you're working on a PhD in psychology, no one else ever said to me, sit down, close your eyes, and do an assessment of how you feel about your life. How's it going? How would you rank it? And if you want to change it, what do you do about it? These are ways of taking personal responsibility. So you think about it, you do some planning, you meet with some people, and then you take action. You implement the plan. You decide you want to exercise. Okay, I'm gonna exercise, but that's not a plan. A plan consists of, when am I gonna exercise? How often am I gonna exercise? What does the exercise consist of? What am I actually gonna do? Am I gonna go to the gym three times a week? Am I gonna take a walk with a friend four times a week? And if I'm gonna walk with a friend four times a week, when are we gonna walk? Are we just gonna say, all right, we're gonna go for a walk? Or are we gonna agree seven o'clock in the morning or 5.30 after work? Or we only have time to do it on weekends? But every Saturday and Sunday, I'm going to get together with my friend Eloise or my friend Fred or whoever it happens to be at 8.30. So you see what I'm saying here? A plan means a time, a day, and what we're going to do. And then we make a plan, and we do it. Well, think about your health. Meet with friends, elders, or advisors. Plan a health improvement program. Act on your plan, and then maintenance You've got to figure out a way to maintain it and yet keep it going. Because health doesn't necessarily come by itself. It might if you you could have certain genetics that you're just going to have great health no matter what you do. And there are people like that. But for most of us ordinary mortals, we need to do something to maintain our health. And particularly, particularly, again, living in a culture where we're trained to look for things outside of ourselves in order to change the inside. And here's an example of the things. They are things that I call controllable impulses, which can lead to controllable impulse disorders. For example, smoking. We have 46 million people in this country who are smoking. That's, uh, That's a lot of smoking. And we have 480,000 people who are dying every year of smoking. But smoking is a controllable impulse. Obviously, 48 million people are unable to control, possibly including the President of the United States, who mentions in his writings quite openly that although he didn't get involved with various other things that he experimented with, he did become addicted to nicotine. Eating is a controllable impulse. And yet, and yet, we have 87 million obese people in the United States. 87 million obese, we're not talking overweight, we're talking obese The only country in the world that has more obese people than the United States is China. They beat us by 2 million. China has 89 million obese people, and we have 87 million obese people. But mind you, China has five times as many people as we do. They have about a billion and a half, and we have about 330 million. So they have five times as many people, but just 2 million more obese. We're, we're really leading the world in obesity. And what does that say? You're all listening to that. Do you take that seriously as I do? I take it very seriously. Because if, if we have 87 million, and by the way, we have another 87 million who are overweight. To me, this is our... United States' way of saying something to ourselves. That's what it means when we have 87 million obese people. We are saying something. We're not just saying it, actually. We're screaming it. We are screaming at the top of our lungs that we're killing 480,000 people from smoking and we're killing 375,000 people from, from the, the effects of overeating. Both are controllable. We are screaming to ourselves and to the world, do something, help us. This is a cry for help. This isn't just people out there suffering. It's a, it's a loud cry for help. And what can we do? Well, certainly here in our own community, we can help each other. Hopefully we can help each other with this because a great deal of this, of this screaming that we're doing is we're screaming that we need a way of changing what's going on inside and the method we're using, which is taking something from outside of ourselves and putting it inside is simply not working. What are the other controllable impulses? I mentioned smoking, I mentioned eating. Gambling is another one. Spending is another one. Spending we live in a, in a very painful situation economically in our country and around the world right now, where we have more and more people at the poverty level, and a tremendous amount of money is being congregated in a very small percentage of the people at the very top. You've heard them referred to as the one-tenth of one percent. It's not an exaggeration here in our own County of Mendocino for example life expectancy changes by two years for every ten thousand dollar increase in median household income you wanna see the data on that you can go to the county of Mendocino and it's right on their website in case you didn't hear that I'm gonna say it again For every $10,000 increase in median household income, life expectancy increases by two years. That's a way of saying the more money that you make, the longer you're going to live. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, those of you who listen regularly, I said that there's a 14-year spread between rich and poor in this country with regard to life expectancy. Very serious, folks. Okay, we're going to take another call. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air.
3: Good morning, Dr. Miller. Good morning. I'm I'm crying for help. I think that you're the right person. Um, I think that you are a good educator, and since this is uh, body, mind, and politics, I think that we're frustrated because we don't know how, and you're here to tell us how.
0: How can I help you?
3: Well... For example, uh, the frustration, I was just thinking about that this morning, that the only uh, channel I have is uh, to Buddhism, which is to learn to accept. That's the only hope that I have, is that, um, or the only channel I have, is that I have to learn to accept instead of getting angry. But I think that there might be a middle way, which is that we need to get angry and we need to have people like you help us get angry so that we can change things. Because we're not able to change uh, outcomes, Um, the injustice, the racism, um, the way this country is going. It's so... Ethnocentric. We're being told to accept things that are so uh, radically uh, um, backwards. We're not moving forward. We're not looking to become more European, more united, more uh, accepting. We're we're. I mean, I could go on and on and on.
0: huh. Well, let me respond to what you're saying, and thank you so much for the call. It's an interesting uh, interesting thing that uh, our listener is saying. On the one hand, more acceptance, and there's a lot of value in more acceptance, more acceptance of who we are, of our neighbors, of our lives. But at the same time, she's also correct that there is a place for anger, but not anger towards our neighbors, not anger towards one another, but righteous anger when there's injustice, righteous anger when there's so much inequality. But we need channel the anger into doing something that makes a contribution. We need channel the anger towards building ourselves and our friends and our families and community, not destroying, and that's where anger misguided often create so much problem. You see that more in the inner cities when the anger of the poor comes out in physical violence and shootings and so on. But I want to put up a caution light here that we do need healthy, honest expressions of anger because anger stuffed creates problems. And we do have evidence that anger stuffed can put pressure on those little tubes that I talked about before in the cardiovascular system, and anger stuff can create high blood pressure. So we need outlets for it. Sometimes it means going to the beach and just screaming our heads off, or in the privacy of our homes. Sometimes it means getting involved in a community activity, getting together with friends, and channeling the anger to do something to help ourselves and to help our neighbors help our neighbors and our families. And I keep focusing, and you'll hear me focusing, on helping ourselves, our neighbors and our families, because those are the people who we come in contact with. Those are the people we're closest to. Remember, when you go into a store and you're friendly to the person who's behind the desk, you're creating something positive. Every one of those little interactions is a human interaction that is building. There's no such a thing as going through the line in a supermarket and being unfriendly, or even worse, to the checker and thinking that means nothing. It means something. Because at the end of that person's day, how many people were friendly and loving creates what that person feels like at the end of their day. And that ripples out into the entire community. And the, and the more we remember that, that each person in our neighborhood in our community that we come in contact with is an opportunity for a relationship, it's an opportunity for love, and it's an opportunity to create something positive. And each little positive act does add up. Because at the end of the day, there could be many of those. And if you multiply them by everybody in the neighborhood and the community, there are tens of thousands, perhaps, of those. And that does affect change. That does affect change. So, back to the controllable impulses. Smoking, eating, gambling, spending. Of course, I left drinking and drugging for last because it's huge. Drinking and drugging is huge. We are taught to drink and drug. There are advertisements on television, on billboards and everywhere. I'm not saying this is a teetotaler. I'm not looking for any kind of prohibition whatsoever. I'm simply saying that we are being trained to take drugs and to drink alcohol in massive amounts. We're being trained by advertising, created by pharmaceutical companies. We're being trained by tobacco companies. This is training. And if it was happening in Russia, we'd be pointing and saying that's brainwashing. But we don't like to think of ourselves as Americans as being brainwashed. But we need to look at it, folks because we're going down instead of up in too many ways. Too many ways. I had on this program Robert Whitaker, who wrote a book, Anatomy of an Epidemic. Robert Whitaker, Anatomy of an Epidemic, where he points out that in his research, as a very, very experienced and well-trained journalist, he points out to us that the Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, so many of us have heard about, SSRIs, are causing more damage than doing good. And there's more and more evidence that he's right. More and more evidence that the SSRIs, suicidality amongst people who take the SSRIs is, is more than twice the suicidality of the regular population. Antidepressants antidepressants I'm getting a note here from Michael I'm sounding a little too negative I'm coming on too strong about warnings thank you Michael thank you very much and forgive me dear listeners if I get off on these rants but I I I get upset when I know that we're being brainwashed into taking things that are harming us and and hopefully just the warning will give us a little something positive from it, but I thank my friend Michael for pointing this out. Here are some of the SSRIs, the antidepressants, that you might be taking that you ought to be watching out for. Lexapro, Celexa, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Cymbalta. I have been invited to dinners. I have been invited to ski vacations put on by these companies. All expenses paid. You don't have to do anything. It's like going to one of these places where they sell you a condo. You know, you go for a free breakfast and for two hours for that free breakfast, they're trying to sell you a condominium. Have any of you ever been in one of those situations? Well, that's what it's like when you go to one of these events put on by a pharmaceutical company. All the expenses, the ski lifts, the, the food, the wine, the drink for the entire weekend put on by Cymbalta. I've been at, I've been at dinners right here in, in Fort Bragg, put on by these drug companies. And you come out of there, and of course, if you're a prescriber, you want to prescribe these medications. But what about the fact that we're being warned? And what about other ways of dealing with the same depression? There's, no, there's, there's scientific evidence that exercise is much more effective than any of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And if you question me on that, look at the Duke University uh, website and you'll see the the studies that they did. And also Consumer Reports uh, did studies on it, comparing these SSRIs to exercise. The evidence is there, folks. If you're taking one of these medicines, you're putting your life in jeopardy. And there are other ways to do it that are much more positive. Michael, I see the phone is ringing there. Let's take the call. And uh, and let's see, here we are. Are you there? And welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning.
4: Um, one of the things that um, stresses me out is hearing commercial advertising on our local educational radio station, specifically hearing hard liquor being advertised in the morning and other booze. Why is an educational station advertising booze?
0: I wasn't aware that educational stations were advertising booze, and I thank you for bringing that to our attention. That's a darn good question.
4: Yes, and another thing is how many times do we need to hear car ads and carpet, carpet advertising? And there's a international corporation on our community calendar, State Farm this commercial advertising is influencing what we're hearing and also feeling on our public radio. How can how can we get back to the non-commercial nature of community radio the way the way we wanted it to be? Enhanced underwriting is like enhanced interrogation. Standard underwriting is fine. I have no problems with hearing the names of people who are giving support. But when the station sells airtime to advertisers to promote their products and gives product descriptions, this doesn't seem in the spirit of community radio.
0: Thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. Hopefully some of the powers that be with our radio station and other radio stations are going to get wind of your comment and perhaps something positive will come of it. Thank you very much. I was just talking about the, um, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors in the context of our being, what I consider to be brainwashed into over-drinking and over-drugging Right now, we're in a situation in this country, perhaps for the first time in history, where total drug overdoses from pharmaceutical pharmaceutical medicine exceeds the number of deaths from automobile fatalities and far exceeds the number of deaths from firearms. Total drug overdoses, cause of death in the United States, most recent statistic, a little over 38,000. Car crashes, 35,000. Firearms, 31,000. By the way, you hear this firearm number thrown about by the politicians looking for votes, 31,000 deaths from firearms in the United States important to take note that roughly 9000 of those deaths are from people shooting one another and the other 22000 roughly are from people shooting themselves so when you look at it from that perspective you can see that this is a political football that's being thrown about what we really need to be looking about looking at are prescription drug overdoses and i'm going to tell you a story from my own practice because there was some information going on around on the list serves asking, you know, how is it possible that there's so many prescription drug overdoses? And here's, here's my story. I'm sitting in my office with a patient that I'm treating for opioid addiction, Oxycontin. And I find out that where he's getting most of his Oxycontin is from his own physician here in Fort Bragg, California, uh, for pain quotes. And so I call the physician with the pa- my patient sitting right there. And I introduce myself, and I tell him the name of the patient. I say, I have permission from the patient. He's sitting right here. I'll put him on the phone. And I'm calling you to please, make a re- I'm making a request, do not prescribe any more of these painkillers, quote, uh, painkillers. That's a very interesting use of language. We'll discuss that later, uh, of these pills Please don't prescribe any more of these to this man because he is addicted. He's in a lot of trouble psychologically and getting in trouble physically, and uh, we're making this request, okay? And he says, certainly. And I say, just to authenticate, I put my patient on the phone. He says hello to his doctor. It's his primary care doctor. He says, yes, I'm in full accord with what Dr. Miller is asking. Don't give me any more of these. Two weeks later, my patient comes back. I mean, he comes back the following week, comes back two weeks later, And I, I, of course, ask him questions. He just came from the doctor's office, and he's got a bottle with him, 90 OxyContin. The very doctor that we called on the phone directly and asked him not to prescribe anymore, he walks in, he says, I need some more of my pain medication, doc. And he writes him a prescription for 90 of these OxyContin. If you multiply this case from my own case file by the United States, then you can understand, perhaps, why we have what has clearly been called an epidemic of drug overdose, particularly these pain medications, OxyContin, OxyCordone, Norco, and so on. We have a serious epidemic in this country. It is very serious, and it is being called a serious epidemic. We also have an epidemic of people being given these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. This is all part of a plan. A plan by who? By the people who sell these medications. The only way they can make, do good business and make their huge profit is by selling these pills. And these pills are very injurious. And then what we have is a situation in our country, which you'll be reading about and which I've been talking about for years now. The Center for Disease Control has made it clear that this is an epidemic. Because what happens is, when the people, the doctors start to shut them off, because the doctors are getting worried, because they're tracing these these prescriptions back to them and hassling some of the doctors, and it's going to happen more and more. What the people do then is they turn to street drugs, and and, and regular middle-class Americans are using heroin for the first time in recorded history. Heroin has a terrible reputation in our country. Hero, heroin has a reputation with drugs the way uh, Doberman Pinschers do with dogs. It's a dangerous drug. The middle class has never been really involved in in heroin in our recorded history before. Because, you know, heroin, I mean, it's like, terrible. Frank Sinatra sort of ruined uh, the heroin in this country when he made that movie. Remember The Man with the Golden Arm? Well, most of you are too young to remember it, but you can probably get it on Netflix. It's a great film. So... The pharmaceutical companies sell the drugs, create a huge sales, a huge effort. The doctors prescribe. People get hooked on the OxyContin's. The doctors start cutting back. The people go to the streets, and we now have a national epidemic. There's another call coming in, Michael. Let's, uh, let's take it. Okay, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air with a bit of an echo.
5: Uh, Good morning. Good morning. In terms of the psychiatric medications, there's also another psychiatrist who's been working um, on this issue of of their, the harm that they cause to the brain and how it changes people's behavior, even though they're unaware of it. And he's been doing this work for about 50 years. He has many books out about it. His name is Peter Breggin. I think it's B-R-E-G-G-I-N. And the book that I got out of the library that we have here in Fort Bragg is the Your Drug May Be Your Problem.
0: Your drug may be your problem, Peter Bregan. I'll see if mm-hmm. I can get a hold of him and have him on the program. Thank yeah. you so much.
5: Well, that would be fabulous. You know, he's a very old man. I don't know if he's still alive, so you better get him quick if he's still around.
0: Okay, I will. And, well, I'm a very old man myself. And he,
5: he's on the website. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you. By the way, listeners, this, this last call telling me about this Dr. Peter Bregan and, uh, and his book, as you're going through life, If you come across someone in your reading, in your writing, in your friendship circle, who you would like me to interview, who you think would be helpful and educational for you to hear, please send me an email. You can send it to drrichardlmiller at gmail.com. Dr. Richard L. Miller at gmail.com, or you can go to my website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and I think there's a way, there is a way right on the website that you can send an email, and I welcome your referrals of people that you'd like me to interview, and I'll follow up on them. So we're talking now, and, and it's again, it's, it's a warning to those of you out there who are taking these pills, uh, particularly the Oxycontins or the SSRIs because the number of people taking them is on the rise. It's very serious. They are very damaging. And what's particularly problematical, and why they're selling so well to the middle class, is because they're not street drugs. See, we in the middle class particularly have been trained that street drugs are potentially dangerous but we've also been trained that something given to us by our doctor, that's okay. And so we have this situation where for the first time, again, another first in history, we have middle-class white men shortening their life expectancy in this country for the first time. And it's a function of the fact that they're taking these prescription medications and literally dying from them. I'm getting a, a note here. You want to take this call, Michael? Sure. Oh, no, I wanted to say something. Oh, please do.
1: Hands. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm thinking that practically everything you're referring to here, to, uh, referring to here, is uh, a symptom of the basic problem that we talked about right at the beginning. You know, and. It's reaching out, looking for a solution outside of yourself, rather than finding inner peace somehow within, within yourself. And that's the challenge many of us face, is how do you find inner peace? Because with that, we can live with any outer condition. Uh, and, we can ch- and the nice thing about time is that uh, there is always a time to change, and every moment is a new moment comes into our life you know our we have a lot of memories you know our past and it is just a memory we can't affect that now Uh, we have the future which is just our dreams and we have the present which is our the time when all things happen in our lives and so if we can look into ourselves and you know as I mentioned at the beginning of the uh, show here we don't reach out and change the mirror when we see our hair out of place. We have to reach in and see what we can do internally. All these things are symptoms of dis-ease and they're not the cure. They're not the cure. And how do we find that, is the question. Nicely put. A symptom of dis-ease, lack of ease
0: within ourselves. And again, it's always going to be tempting to reach outside because so far, that's what we're being taught. Interesting on this, uh, the issue of uh, this opioid OxyContin epidemic in this country, because it turns out that the, that the drug that was made illegal back in, what, 1937, tetrahydrocannabinol, we know it as marijuana, it turns out that marijuana is a particularly effective pain reducer. And it does not bring with it all the negative consequences of these opioids. So the government sort of did a complete flip-flop. They made illegal something that has fewer side effects. In fact, now with the discovery and a lot of pioneering research, particularly by a, a local doctor here in Mendocino, Dr. William Courtney, that some of you know, with the, with the With the uh, bringing to the focus, cannabidiol CBD, which is different from THC in that the marijuana that most people are used to and have heard about changes the mental state as well as the physical state, whereas the cannabidiol is not psychoactive. So you don't get changes in your mind, but you do get the medicinal effect. So interestingly enough, for a period of 60, 70 years now, the government has suppressed research on marijuana, has kept it illegal, while promulgating the use of these OxyContin and opioids, which are creating an epidemic. This needs to be turned around. This has to be turned around, and I think we're in the process of doing that very thing. Michael, I think we have time for one more call. Let's see who that is. Thank you. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air.
5: Thank you. I just wanted to mention something that I consider kind of practical. When we go in to see our physicians, they often take our blood pressure, very often. And um, if that blood pressure is over a particular level— they usually want to assign you a medication, a blood pressure medication. What I'm suggesting to our listening audience, our beautiful listening audience, is that when you take blood pressure, there's some real basic things that one has to do, and one needs to be calm and still for 10 minutes. Resting, let the heart rate come down. When you go into a physician, often we're very anxious. Most of us are anxious because there's just an element of fear around health, uh, there's an attitude that we're all kind of time bombs ready to go off with some horrible disease and that makes us very afraid the physician's gonna find something. So our blood pressure goes up. Take a moment, breathe through your belly and let yourself come into a calm state and then and require that they don't have you rushing in and getting your blood pressure and then sticking you on a medication that you may or may not need. Get a valid reading on your blood pressure by making sure that your arm is up to heart level, that you have rested and not are overstimulated or rushing into your appointment, and required to tell them, hey, wait a minute, I'm just a little anxious right now. I need you to either do a second reading or I need to have you just wait a minute before you do this reading. Because uh, what we end up with uh, 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 is a bunch of people that get on high blood pressure medicine that may not need it, and then they're on it for the rest of their lives, with the side effects. I'll just leave that thought out to the audiences to be your best advocate. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. That was a very important call. Everything she said is right on. In fact, the most accurate way to get your blood pressure taken by your physician is with a machine that the physician puts on you And then the physician leaves the room and the machine takes three to five readings over a 10-minute period. Anything other than that is going to be affected by the fact that the doctor's in the room and you're nervous about being in front of your doctor. It's called the white coat uh, phenomenon. That's very important. The other thing to note is not to drink coffee an hour before going in for a blood pressure test or to take any other kind of medication. But this listener was giving us some very important information because what she said is accurate. It does happen. People go in. They're nervous. They're nervous in front of their doctor. They're drinking coffee or they were rushing. The blood pressure reading is pretty high. The doctor puts them on medication, which is not warranted, and that's serious. Folks, I want you to join me in talking about the health of Mendocino County and what we can do about it. Why am I saying that? Because there are statistics on the health of counties uh, in the uh, state of California. There are 50, what, six counties in the state of California? 57. 57. Thank you, Michael. Mendocino is 40th. We are low, and we want to come up higher. Why are we so low? Because we have a vehicle crash death rate, which is twice the state's average. We have an unintentional injury from uh, the causing death which is almost twice the state's average. We have a firearm injury uh, death rate that's twice the state average. And we have a suicide rate that's more than twice the state average. And we can do something about this, folks. We can team up and make our county the healthiest county. We've got the best air in Mendocino County. We've got great water in Mendocino County. And we've got a lot of friendly people. And we can pull together and change this so that we're no longer way down way down in the 40s. Well, I want to thank you all for, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff, our new General Manager, Lorraine Dector, our new Program Director who comes from us to us from Oregon, Raul Van Hall, most welcome, and I want you all to give him a hearty welcome to our, pro, to our station, And of course, I want to thank our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is working hard. It's worth working hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.